0: Game Cool Books, Episode 35, The Name of Her Destiny. We get a summary of something like the second half of the first book, in the first sentence of Chapter 2, Among the Witches, from the perspective of the Witch Queen, Serafina Pecala. The effects of Lord Azrael's window upon Lyra's world frame the chapter, the main consequence being an atmospheric disturbance and a fog, much more far-reaching than the storm that initially separated the witches and Lee Scoresby from Lyra. And we get no mention of that other witch clan that attacked them. So maybe Pullman thought better of that. And just let the storm be enough. In this uncertainty, the witch queen wonders what became of Lyra. He begins to search. Flying through the cloudy, gold-tinged air on her branch of cloud pine, accompanied by her demon, Kaisa the Snow Goose, they moved back toward Svalbard and south a little, soaring for several hours under a sky, turbulent with strange lights and shadows. Serafina Pecola knew from the unsettling tingle of the light on her skin that it came from another world. Direction comes in the form of a lost turn demon, like her own meeting with Corum, and like the opening of Lyra's Oxford. Signaling friendship, and we'll see this later with Thorold, too, she learns the Turn's witch has been captured by Mrs. Coulter, that the demon has been calling to her but can't find her. Apparently, she rebelled after learning what was going on at Bolvanger making her a minor echo of Lord Asriel's greater rebellion. And their calling might be related too. The turned demon and Seraphina are compared to the child and its mother, an important motif in the chapter which begins to interrogate Mrs. Coulter as a mother. And so they go to the ship. But there still may be renegade witches too, aiding... In spite of knowing what she and the church are up to. So they must be careful. Guide us in, the pilot of the launch says, taken in by her disguise, her disguise as herself, as what he expects, and so he does the rest, taking her for a renegade witch. Then there's another signal, the red light for port, and the foghorn. Sounds a uh, low, brutal, shuddering blast, like some immense sea creature calling from the depths. Mm. So, like a whale. We'll uh, come back to these signs, signals. Seraphina trusts Kaisa to stay safe, and she follows the figure with the golden monkey. We overhear that Boreal has gone elsewhere. We'll meet him for too long in the torture of the captured witch, Mrs. Coulter complains of a lack of discipline but it becomes clear she is not the authority on board her own impatience keeps her from looking harder for Serafina, though she knows something is up (laughs) Serafina shrank back Obviously, the sailor in the launch hadn't heard the latest state of things. The cleric looked around, bewildered, but Mrs. Coulter was too impatient, and after a cursory glance above and along the deck, she shook her head and hurried in with her demon through the open door that cast a yellow nimbus on the air. And a little bit later here. Light spilled thickly from the windows onto the fog-pearled railing, and dimly showed up the foremast and the canvas-covered hatch. Everything was ringing wet and beginning to freeze into stiffness. No one could see Serafina where she was, but if she wanted to see any more, she would have to leave her hiding place. There's this interesting dance between uh, patience and impatience, stillness and movement, and, uh, and of course the light that Pullman is always so fond of describing. In the ship setting, with its saloon and fog-pearled ropes might have recalled the egyptians to lyra but if seraphina thinks of them she doesn't say concentrating instead on this new theme of seeing and being seen or not a development overlaying the familiar one of symbols it's developed as signals and signs here so first she accepts the danger realistically and then turns her mind to a kind of magic she could work to make herself unseen. True invisibility was impossible, of course, but this was mental magic, a kind of fiercely held modesty that could make the spell worker not invisible, but simply unnoticed. Hmm. Similarity to Will is clear. The narrator will spell it out in a subsequent chapter. Serafina tests her spell on the sailor mechanic, provides a beat of comic relief, but then it's into the belly of the beast, the bowels of the ship. Here she finds a council in session, a dozen or so men, including the cardinal and clerics. Serafina recapitulates here Lyra's trespass into the retiring room and in the an Egyptian parley room, and there's another foil for Lyra here as well. The man with his frog demon and books and a lithiometer, reading laboriously. And also, for the first time, we see a high level churchman on his own turf, pushing even Mrs. Coulter around. She becomes more and more enraged by his insinuations, by her own deficient knowledge, and on this of all subjects, she is ordered to confess, but she knows not what. Uh, But she does know something about the child, of course, in a kind of knowledge that they, of course, as men, and particularly as priests, are incapable of experiencing. She also makes the remark that she is not so subtle as the cardinal, which is a very important word in this book, of course. And, which may actually be true in this moment, since her anger is so palpable, and his expression is so full of meaning. But what meaning? (laughs) Such seems to be the nature of subtlety, a meaning without a name, a purposefulness whose purpose is concealed. And such is the prophecy, hinted at by the Egyptians with their talk of witch oil, that Lyra is uncanny. And this has been borne out by her accomplishments already, but there is more to come. Fra Pavel, the elithiometrist, claims that his is the only elithiometer left, that the others have all been destroyed, but if possible, still, he would disbelieve it, with the bitterness of one whose decades of diligent study have been surpassed by a child's almost complete mastery. He says it's already late. I don't know. Not too late for them to try to stop her, but again, stop her from what? And so finally, Mrs. Coulter loses her patience completely. She demands, how dare they, three times, I think, thrice. She uses that phrase, how dare, and she's described as chalk white in anger, thinking no doubt of how she will get the information she needs from the witch by torture. She gruesomely describes the futility of them trying to torture her, Mrs. Coulter, and searching her own flesh for an answer. And echoing Asriel's language to her, she avows that Lyra is her child. And I demand that you tell me what you know my child my own child conceived in sin and born in shame but my child nonetheless and you keep from me what i have every right to know that demand about right also sounds like Lyra's to lord azrael there in his library overlooking the waste the immensely complex question about this prophecy will require time to set before and read from the alethiometer, but the gnashing teeth of Mrs. Coulter's demon suggests eternity, and not a pleasant one. Seraphina, as you remember, our perspective for this part of this chapter, takes a moment to compose herself uh, before we enter the room where the witch is bound tightly to a steel chair, with agony on her gray face and her legs twisted and broken. It's a mercifully brief passion play, actually. There's just a few snapped fingers, and then the witch finally does begin to tell. The child who was to come, the witches knew who she was before you did. We found out her name. We know her name. What name do you mean? Her true name. The name of her destiny. She won't tell it. So then, Miss Coulter changes tack. How? Found out how? There was a test. If she was able to pick out one spray of cloud pine from many others, she would be the child who would come. And it happened at our consul's house at Travison, when the child came with the Egyptian men, the child with the bear. so that Lyra's destiny is wrapped up with her power to read the alethiometer, which, of course, allowed her to complete the consul's test, and, as we'll learn, to complete it very quickly, in time to actually hear a little bit of what he was saying about the prophecy, the far decorum. We'll get there. The violence in the scene, again, is not terribly gratuitous. We see the snapped fingers, we hear the slap, rather than seeing it. This is Coulter's voice of bronze, is terrifying, but still not enough to wring the name out of the captive. She does say a little more, though. She is the one who came before, and you have hated and feared her ever since. Well, now she has come again, and you failed to find her. She was there on Svalbard. She was with Lord Asriel, and you lost her. She escaped, and she will be. But before she could finish, there came an interruption. I think it's probably safe to say that there's some element here of repression uh, in in the psychological sense, uh, as well as the political, on the church's part, if if what the witch has said is still not enough for them to be able to tell who this she must be. Um, But in this moment, our demon breaks in. in. In passing, you might note that somehow this witch knew that the child was at Lord Asriel's house. I almost wonder if she was the witch that was helping Lord Asriel with his experiment. Um, but our curiosity on this point will not be satisfied either. Because Serafina plays the role of Yambayaka, answering the witch's call at last, as the demon did, incarnating the deity and understanding death as a release. So there's actually quite a bit of the sacred ritualistic about this moment. And as she already accepted, she must fight her way out afterwards, taking out the cardinal first with an arrow. Though if in the future she plans to kill Mrs. Coulter, we might wonder why she didn't name for her first. Of course, perhaps she knows Mrs. Coulter has a part to play in Lyra's fate as well. Serfina eludes more sailors and bullets by her puzzling speech and her swift flight and gets away. Rather than wondering about Lyra's destiny, the question driving the church to employ brutal methods and brute force alethiometry, but one the answer to which the witches already seem to know, rather than wondering about that, Serafina's driving question has shifted to what was Asriel doing? This is a lovely little passage. Um, The problem was that the the usual sources of her knowledge were natural ones. She could track any animal, catch any fish, find the rarest berries, and she could read the signs in the pine marten's entrails, or decipher the wisdom in the scales of a perch, or interpret the warnings in the crocus pollen. But these were children of nature, and they told her natural truths. For knowledge about Lord Asriel, she had to go elsewhere of like what we heard Father Corum describing about how deeply the witches care about the flowering of tiny plants on the tundra. She goes back to Trollocent for this unnatural, supernatural knowledge. The mist there is ghost-like, one might even say spectral. There's an African vessel which, as we'll learn, is transporting a regiment of zombie soldiers, apparently mustering in another world So another example of south and north crossing and meeting. Oddly, details of the scene at the consuls recall nothing so much as Jordan College with Serafina tapping at the window to be let in from the consul's garden. Like Lyra did the morning that she left from the masters. And Dr. Lancelius offers the witch a glass of Tokai. They exchange news, share their fear of Mrs. Coulter, though they don't won't say why, if you he her so, and about the rumors in the fog of war. As Asriel foresaw, the church is in confusion while the witch clans gather themselves at their homes. Dr. Celius does not know what Lord Asriel's up to, but he does not believe it is either scholarship or rule that drives him. When quorum and lyra were there last seeking information and aid he told them about the bear this time he directs seraphina not to yorick but to another svalbard dweller the servant thorold again it's conspicuous that they do not discuss the prophecy about lyra another swift journey ensues more evocations of the strangeness of the times. All the Arctic peoples had been thrown into panic, and so had the animals, not only by the fog and the magnetic variations, but by unseasonal crackings of ice and stirrings in the soil. It was as if the earth itself, the permafrost, were slowly awakening from a long dream of being frozen. In all this turmoil, where sudden shafts of uncanny brilliance lanced down through rents and towers of fog and then vanished as quickly, where herds of muskox were seized by the urge to gallop south and then wheeled immediately to the west or the north again, where tight-knit skeins of geese disintegrated into a honking chaos as the magnetic fields they flew by wavered and snapped this way and that, Serafina Pecola sat on her cloud pine and flew north to the house on the headland in the wastes of Svalbard. Magnificent. The skeins of geese uh, that dream of being frozen. I think there's threads here of, well, Lyra and the birds again, for one thing, but also of the role of dreams and knowledge that comes from where we know not. And there's more confusion even among those that are also taking advantage of the confusion. The cliff ghasts, who are an enemy always whereas witches are an enemy sometimes um so they drive them away and then she gives the signal of peace I lay my bow down it's another reminder of Jordan that comes next the comfortable chairs uh there at Lord Azrael's where Thorold reminisces of what he recalls of Lyra that she was a willful child um Just what Lee Scoresby called her. I'd see her every year or so when his lordship visited his college. I was fond of her mind. He couldn't help it. But what her place was in the wider scheme of things, I don't know. Again, she doesn't really need to know that, because what she needs to know is what was Lord Asriel planning to do? You don't think he told me, do you, Seraphina Pecola? I'm his manservant, that's all. I clean his clothes and cook his meals and keep his house tidy. I may have learned a thing or two in the years I've been with his lordship, but only by picking him up accidental. He wouldn't confide in me any more than in his shaving mug. <laughs> so, that takes the visits at every year or so, which is helpful, and which suddenly seems fairly generous, actually, if Lord Azriel was planning something this audacious all along. Whatever it is, though, he wouldn't confide it to his manservant. This protestation of ignorance, after, what, 40 years of service, sounds a little bit like Pro- Pullman's proteta- protestations uh, when he describes his secrecy of his writing process. Um, but Thorold, uh, flattered by the beautiful witch's attention, will go so far as to speculate though he recognizes that that attention of hers is for what he can tell rather than for himself. And perhaps the narrator feels this too from us, the audience. And so he won't draw it out too much, we're told. To Dr. Lancelius's question about what motivates Lord Asriel, Thorold contends that it's hatred of the church and of its doctrines that drives his master. Though he doesn't know, I know, he hastens to add, and that it's not from any one thing but from all the countless little ones adding up. It's very interesting to me to try to map this onto um, our attempts to gather from details what the narrator's intentions might be. Now, it's interesting, too, that the world wonders about the witches' other gods. And we might too, besides uh, Yambe Aka, we don't really hear much about their beliefs. Um, but we're told that Azrael's rebellion against the authority, the human god, has showed itself over the years as a spasm of disgust. A servant of his who could read him better than any wife or mother. And still he can see where he's headed, but can't fly to those heights with him. (laughs) That the church was too weak to be worth fighting. So he's against the authority himself. (laughs) As he puts it, it's the only story that makes sense. And he acknowledges that it's a gigantic blasphemy Um, and in an image that we'll see more viscerally portrayed in the closing scenes of this book where Will wrestles with his father. I think this talk of rebellion invites us to see Asriel as a parallel to Israel, the one who struggles with God as he was to Jacob in his vision of a passage between worlds in another verbal echo of the book's final conflict Thorold reflects on Asriel's approach to the possible that his life has been filled with impossible things like what? (laughs) we might ask we might like to know we don't hear about any specific examples that uh His insight into possibility, that is Asriel's, at the end of the golden compass, uh, characterizing possibility as the generative force, uh, as it were, creating multiple worlds, branching them off from one another, that that jars somewhat with his effort uh, here to kill God. And if that is to clear the way for some new creation, We get no real hint of it yet. That would sort of fit in the idea of negative capability somewhere, perhaps. But anyway, Thorold still isn't sure. He says, if angels couldn't do it, how can a man? So here he introduces another motif of this book, the role of angels. How they connect with and diverge from what the church teaches. He explains that that is a state of pure spirit though Seraphina hasn't heard this term angel she presumably does know about spirits Uh, being a witch she just doesn't know this church framework for it and uh, again Thorold submits that he would not even dare to speak of all this unless he thought she was beyond that church's power the final move in their discussion is to recur to Asriel's limitless ambition. If he does what other men don't even dare think, what other people don't even dare think, who else has done that is a rhetorical question. But as Will points out, someone made his window. So Perhaps Asriel is not so unique. And Thurld winds up saying one part of him thinks he's mad, the other just thinks he's Lord Asriel. His nature, his character is the sufficient explanation for what he's up to. So, while Thorold resolves to stay and wait loyally, Serafina continues on her way and uh, is going to make sure that the child is safe. So, a third time we fly with the witch, we sword and wield above the foggy mountains she was deeply troubled and there was no need to explain every strand of moss every icy puddle every midge in her homeland thrilled against her nerves and called her back she felt fear for them but fear of herself too for she was having to change these were human affairs she was inquiring into this was a human matter lord asriel's god was not hers was she becoming human was she losing her witchhood were she could not do it alone so her homeland is calling to her that power again of Azrael's and of the dying witch that's ascribed now to the land itself the trouble is that seraphina cannot stay aloof but feels called to act in these human affairs and asks if she's becoming human and that would have to take place with her sisters so its involvement that in involvement in affairs causes one to become human and that seems to be what the story seeks to foster finally the chapter moves us truly among the witches now these sisters gathered at lake enara in the forested caves they live even more so than the Egyptians in the fens, right in their elements of nature. Lee Scoresby is our representative human here, who's been invited to join the council. Having made repairs to his balloon, while the witches fly effortlessly like black snow on a secret tide, they seem to men laboring and hunting below. There's also another visitor from a distant land. Ruta Skadi, queen of the Latvian witches. Her comparison to Mrs. Coulter and then by extension to Serafina too is one that adds onto her beauty an aspect of the uncanny of having trafficked with spirits, angelic or otherwise. And like Mrs. Coulter, Azriel has been her lover. In place of of flowers. Her crown is the teeth of snow tigers that she killed to punish the Tartar tribe that worshipped them. The death of a god, in short. And then she scorns their worship, for what good had it done the tiger? <laughs> uh, she does it, though, to teach them something. Could this be part of Asriel's or the narrator's aim in? killing the authority. i trying to, anyhow. The witches, at least, observe courtesy and etiquette amongst themselves. We're told that Lee is whiplash-lean and courteous. Now, Seraphina's opening question is the one she has been asking herself, but without the corollary about becoming human made explicit, though it might be implied, she asks, should we concern ourselves or not? In these matters she names lyra and in passing she mentions yorick but the bear i think remains conspicuous by his absence here she does though talk about the prophecy in passing she uh, chose the right cloud pine spray at the house of dr lenselius she is the child we have always expected and now she has vanished so we've heard Serafina say it in the Balloon to Lee, and Thorold alluded to the fall of the rebel angels. But Ruta Scotty then lays out the matter much more starkly that they are at war, and that in this war they must fight against the church, the magisterium. Her reason? That the church seeks to suppress and control every good uh, natural impulse. Um, uh, rather control, destroy, obliterate every good feeling <laughs> um, why they do this she does not venture to guess it was Lyra's anguished question, why are they so cruel at the end of the last book and that I think included Asriel along with the church it was a natural question to ask but apparently it's an immaterial one to this fierce fighter like Asriel did Scotti parallels what happened at Bolvanger to castration. She goes further, she amplifies this with the cardinal direction of the south, where they cut the sexual organs of both boys and girls, so they won't feel. So, her goal is to explore, to find the child, but most of all to aid Lord Asriel in his war. Now, Lee, for his part, is Introduced as a friend of the child and thus of the witches. He, we're told, looks not as if he were not conscious of the strangeness of the situation, but he was. So that's another kind of invisibility. Um, again, love the description of him as whiplash, lean, and courteous. I think he's a hero, Will might recognize from the cinema of his, of our world. He Reminds us here again of the song and poem that Pullman drew on Schoenberg's uh, string quartet with the line about a wind from another world. Then Lee reaches way back to the scene in the retiring room when Azriel tricked the scholars about Stanislaus Grumman and just as Lyra struggled to remember what it was they'd said about Jofor Raknissen, and then she finally did remember so it seems that Her story of this moment triggered a sort of memory for Lee of something he heard in the Tungusk, that uh, region famous in our world for the mysterious Tunguska event. Something he heard about Grumman knowing of uh, an object which grants protection. And so his goal is now to seek him out and secure that protection for Lyra. And for this, he'll postpone his retirement to Texas. It's uh, yet another exotic northern location, Nova Zemla, where the storm that separated their party above Svalbard was already going to blow them towards. Is that a strange coincidence or what? That's where he'll begin the search. He says he's with you in this war. Just what he was so loath to admit in that talk in the balloon with Serafina. And as Dr. Grumman will ask him later, Serafina asks him now. Are you married, Mr. Scoresby? Do you have a family? Do you have a child? And he says, no. No, ma'am. I have no child, though I would have liked to be a father. But I understand your question, and you're right. That little girl has had bad luck with her true parents. And maybe I can make it up to her. Someone has to do it, and I'm willing. Thank you, Mr. Scoresby, she said she took off her crown and plucked from it one of the little scarlet flowers that while she wore them remained as fresh as if they had just been picked. So we remember that Serafina too has not had um, a child or at least not not the one that she wanted to have with Coram. That child died. Maybe she's remembering that here when she gives him this flower from a crown to be able to call her at need and they're like the witches themselves these flowers that, that do not age or seem not to and further the witches will call up a wind from their world to help him on his way like the Egyptians at their roping the witches are democratic at their council up to a point they're allowed to speak freely though it ultimately falls to the leader to decide and the wisest carry the day with the mission to join all the clans for the first time while Serafina picks twenty to fly north with her into the new world to seek Lyra with all haste and Rutascati will accompany them again like the Egyptians they have multiple aims in going north those aims are somewhat in tension with one another is it a rescue mission a vengeance, a vendetta to add another layer of complexity, one which in particular Utah Kamainen, young at just over a hundred and vivid, uh, for her love and hate of German is um, of which she is made to tell, though she doesn't want to, uh, had better come with them, uh Seraphina decides, so that he'll be safe for Lee Scoresby to find. Um There's an interesting instance here of that theme of uh, embarrassment uh, being tied to telling the truth, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, She said, I know the man Stanislaus Kuhlmann. I used to love him, but I hate him now with such a fervor. that If I see him, I shall kill him. I would have said nothing, but my sister made me tell you. She glanced with hatred at the elder witch who returned her look with compassion. She knew about love. And Serafina says, Forget him, Yuta Kermainin. Love makes us suffer, but this task of ours is greater than revenge. Remember that. "Yes, queen, said the young witch humbly. The parallel here may be with Roger, actually, too, whom Lyra in rescuing leads into the greatest danger, thinking that it's safety. And now, uh, like nothing so much as Star Trek, they fly where none had flown before.